We'll hear argument first this morning in case 09338, Renico v. Lett. Mr. McGormley. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Because this is a habeas case arising from a murder conviction and ta- obtained in the Michigan courts, the threshold question under AEDPA is whether there is any clearly established Supreme Court precedent that the Michigan Supreme Court objectively, unreasonably applied in rejecting Mr. Lett's claims that the trial court had abused its discretion in, de- in discharging the jury due to deadlock. The Sixth Circuit second-guessed on habeas, ignored deference under AEDPA, as well as the broad discretion due the trial to- court determination. Here there was a note uh, suggesting acrimonious deliberations received early on in the second day of deliberations, followed by a second note suggesting a deadlock. After approximately uh, 10 hours of trial testimony and four hours of deliberations, the trial court at that time engaged the foreperson in a colloquy, uh, a two-part colloquy, in which the foreperson not only confirmed the content of, of the first note, but also confirmed the existence of a deadlock. Excuse me. The content of the first note was a query of the court, and that query was, what happens if we can't reach a verdict? Isn't that substantially different? Doesn't that suggest the jury's trying to figure out what are the consequences of its actions and whether reaching a consensus is possible? Uh, well, Justice Sotomayor, the, the first note was the note uh, regarding um, our raised voices disturbing other proceedings. The second note regarding — Excuse me. How, how long before that last note was that? Uh, it, well, the, the, the Michigan Supreme Court re- refers to that as early on in the second day of deliberations. And then uh, there's approximately uh, three hours and 15 more minutes of deliberations, because after the second note — Did anybody hear the voices? Uh, the record doesn't disclose, this doesn't disclose that. Could you tell me what facts found by the lower courts or the trial courts show that the court acted, quote, and this is from our earlier Perez case, the very first in this area, deliberately, responsibly, and not precipitously in declaring a mistrial? What in the facts you recited well, showed that activity? Uh, Justice Sotomayor, the, the first point I would make is that, of course, this is on habeas review. And so the, the Michigan Supreme Court made factual uh, findings here that would be due deference. What is the factual finding that you think we have to give deference to? I, I know the facts you recited. There don't appear to be any of the facts with respect to what occurred during the activity. So what factual finding do we have to give deference to? Well, the, the factual finding uh, by the Michigan Supreme Court that, uh, that there appeared to be acrimonious deliberations. That's, that's a factual finding due deference under E-1. But I'm not sure how that finding supports the finding or a finding that the court was acting deliberately, responsibly, and not precipitously. Going back to this uh, court's opinion in Perez, uh, considering uh, sound uh, judgment, discretion, considering all the circumstances, here we have to look at the totality of the circumstances, in that it was a relatively short trial, that we have a note that can be reasonably interpreted as uh, acrimonious deliberations, the second note that can be reasonably construed as a deadlock, and then the trial court uh, did not declare a mistrial at that point. Rather, the trial court uh, brings the jury out and engages in a colloquy. And in that colloquy, the trial court accepts the foreperson's answer at her word, and that is, are you going to be able to reach unanimous verdict? The answer being no. And in fact, it's the Sixth Circuit who is who second-guessed in this case by saying, you can't uh, place that much weight on on that statement by the foreperson. Because the foreperson at first hesitated. Uh, when the court asked the question, are you going to reach a unanimous verdict or not, then there's no response. And then the court says, Yes or no, and only at that second point 
does the poor person say no? So it, it was a reluctant no. Uh, well, I don't necessarily believe it's a reluctant no. I it might have been sneezing. I mean, we don't know what caused the pause, do we? That's correct, Justice Scalia. And that's another factor in this. We have the transcript. Uh, are you urging that because the trial court judge was there on the spot, saw the jury, worked with the jury, that that's something that deserves a special measure of respect? Absolutely, Justice Ginsburg. As uh, this Court has qualified that as, as broad discretion and special respect due the trial court determination after the trial court is the one uh, viewing the, the jury in, in real time. So, so absolutely. And in fact, this, this risk of coercion uh, was recognized also by this court uh, in, in Arizona versus Washington. May I ask you another question about what happened? The, um, after the the four person said, no, Judge, we're, we're not going to reach a unanimous verdict. The judge says, all right, I hereby declare a mistrial. The jury is dismissed. And then the next entry in the transcript that we have is, well, Mr. Gordon snuck away before we could set a new trial date. Now, Mr. Gordon was defense, was the defense attorney? Correct, Your Honor. So when did he leave? Do we know when he left? Was he was present when the judge said that? Uh, she was going to declare a mistrial. Correct, but I don't know that that minute or so uh, gap. I don't know when Mr. Gordon snuck out. Can you tell me uh, along the line is the same line of questioning? I, I understand about it. I understand about deference. Jurisdictions. Just tell me a little bit about how this often works in state courts and in federal courts. Uh, it would it be good practice in your view, and that may not control your case, but would it be good practice? For the uh, judge to have had exactly this colloquy and then say, um, the jurors are dismissed while I uh, talk with counsel. And you say, counsel, in light of this response, uh, I'm prepared to declare a mistrial. Do you have any comment? Is that good practice? Uh, it, it may be good practice, but the question becomes whether it's constitutionally required. Now, what I, would I, I, I'm, ask, that's, I'm asking if it's good practice. I, I would it's say a general practice. Well, in this court, because because that will bear ultimately on a constitutional issue. I understand deference. I understand that the, that all in, in, in intendments are uh, in, in in favor of what the, the state supreme court found. I'm, I'm just wanted want you to tell me how it works out there in the real world. Well, I, I believe that uh, discussion with counsel is a factor in in the consideration. I, I don't dispute that, but this court has never held that it's a requirement. What, what, what if, factor is it? What if, what if uh, both counsels say, uh, no, you should not declare a mistrial? Can the judge go ahead and declare a mistrial? A absolutely, and, here, and here's why. Not a very big fact. Well, it, 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 it's important in, in the coercion context because certainly the trial court has an independent obligation uh, to ensure a, a just uh, judgment. That, that, that independent obligation is not reinforced by getting counsel's views, just as a matter of good practice. It, it, it may be it may be reinforced, or reinforced in certain circumstances, but again, we're looking at the totality of uh, of the circumstances when we have uh, a note indicating acrimony, a note indicating deadlock, and then the colloquy in which there's an. Well, it certainly is good practice if if both counsel agree that there's manifest necessity for a mistrial then there isn't going to be a double jeopardy issue in the case. Isn't that right? Correct. Under, under Dennett's, if, if the defendant uh, consents, then there, there is no double jeopardy. Was there an objection here by, by, by counsel for the defendant? Uh, no, there, there, no, there wasn't. But, uh, you know, the, the colloquy is, is relatively short. But, no, I, I, I believe the defendant's counsel could have objected. Well, there was a ruling by the court. I hereby declare a mistrial. Then. I, I suppose you could have an objection, but it would be very the — jury, the jury was present when the judge said, I hereby declare the mistrial. Correct. So it would be rather awkward for the counsel at that point. There, was no, there was no pause, you agree, between the, the four-person's report and the court. Then, then said immediately afterward, the jury is dismissed. So there was no interval for an objection. Well, uh, it, it, 
it would be difficult for counsel to object at that point, but I still think counsel could have uh, made a record immediately at that point. Why would it have been difficult? Why would it have been difficult for counsel to say, may we have a sidebar and say, uh, Your Honor, I, I don't think that, uh, that there should be a mistrial. I think you should ask the jury to deliberate further. Well, that, that is possible, and that was uh, seen in the Webb case as well, where the, the trial court this is a circuit court. What do you make of the fact that in subsequent proceedings the prosecutor acknowledged that the judge made a mistake? In Michigan, confessions of error are controlled by uh, court rule as a procedural matter, and the appellate courts have the ability to accept statements that could be qualified as a confession of error or not. Here, the Michigan Supreme Court addressed this case on the merits, the underlying double jeopardy merits. Um, in much the same way, it didn't did not address potential waiver or consent issues by the defendant. So we have a merits uh, opinion here. There are, there are thousands and thousands of mistrials every year uh, on hung jury is not at all unusual. So in this case, uh, we have testimony going on for four days, 10 hours total. Uh, we have a jury deliberation of four and a half hours. And we have really very little, I think you can argue it both ways, that the jury was deadlocked. There's some things for, some against, and only a couple. And he doesn't consult with the lawyer. All right? Uh, now, of these thousands and thousands of cases that must be there over the decades, you probably looked for a few or at least talked to your fellow bar members. How many of you found where you would say that a mistrial was declared despite facts that are on your side? In other words, there are going to be millions of cases, not millions, but thousands. Many of them will support the defense. Maybe many support you. But I haven't seen any here that say they support you. So how many do, and what do you want me to read to see that this is not an extreme case that counts as an abuse of the judge's discretion? How many did you find which will prove to me this is not, this is closer to the norm? Well, the difficult part in answer, answering uh, Your Honor's question is that this Court has indicated that there is no mechanical formula or test. Correct. In every That's why I'm asking you the question. What they've said is, is it an abuse of discretion? And they've also said the judge has to be careful. Okay. So we have like a abuse of discretion scale. And this is pretty far over on the abuse of discretion side, I think anyone would admit. But what cases will show to me that it's on your side, not quite an abuse of discretion? Or is this the most extreme case in history? I, I don't believe it is. I know you don't believe it. All I want you to do is to give me some evidence, like refer me to some other cases or explain to me how you've come to that conclusion, not on the facts of this case, but looking at on the scale. I, I reached that conclusion by looking at this Court's other language, for instance, from I don't want you to look at this Court. We don't have a case where we said what was an abuse of discretion. I want you to tell me, and I'll, I've already said this twice, but I'm judging from your answer you found no case supporting you. You have found no case in the history of the United States that was, that was more extreme than this. I have where not they said it wasn't an abuse of discretion. That's what I'm judging from your answer. I have not found a case on these facts with a note indicating acrimonious deliberations. That, that's, that is correct. There is no note indicating. There, there are five, the six notes they sent out, and at 9.30 in the morning, they said, Judge, we have a concern about our voice levels disturbing. That's what they said. Then they asked to see the evidence, and they said, explain count two. And they said, are we allowed to break? And then they said, what if we can't agree? Mistrial, retrial, what? And at 12.27, the same time, they said, what about lunch? Then he brought him out, and he says to the juror, all right, you believe it's hopelessly deadlocked. And the foreperson said, the majority of us don't believe that. And he said, don't say what you're going to say. And then he doesn't have the lawyer there. Okay, that's fairly extreme. So, so that's why I asked the question. The reference there uh, uh, about don't say what you're going to say is likely a reference to don't give the breakdown of, of your verdict. Mr. Mr. McCormley, is it your burden to answer that question? Given EDPA, is it up to you to show that this case is within the mainstream, or is it the, up to the other side to show rather conclusively that it is not in the mainstream? I thought that's what EDPA required. It is petitioner's burden. It is petitioner's burden. 
to show that there are, are cases like this where, I, I guess, to show that uniformly in cases like this, uh, there is no discharge of the, uh, of the jury. And I'm not aware that they've carried that burden. But we'll ask when they come up. It is their burden, however. Exactly, but I'm drawing some conclusion from your silence. You haven't found a case supporting you. I have not found a case on these facts, but that's consistent. Have you found any case where a judge has declared a mistrial without conferring with counsel, where the declaration was upheld? Uh, Actually, there's one out of the Sixth Circuit, Klein v. Lease, from this very circuit in which uh, the individual, it was not a deadlock jury case, but the individual had a, uh, some sort of st- uh, stunner control belt on the defendant, and he lifted it up, and the trial court. Well, you can't read from that one, because in that one, it was the mistrial was um, uh, held not because of a jury deadlock, but because of improper prejudicial actions during the trial. But that's a different question. But it's still a manifest necessity determination. In fact, uh, this Court has indicated that on the spectrum of reasons, a deadlock jury it warrants the least amount of, of appellate scrutiny. So Could you tell — yes, but that doesn't mean none. What — what — other than we have cases where judges have declared mistrials because they're going on vacation, those are easy ones, okay? Um, but somewhere the word abuse of discretion means that someone has discretion but is improperly exercising. What facts would it take for you to believe that that would have been the case? What do you have to take out of this case to say, ah, that, was, that would have been an abuse of discretion? At what point? If he got the note and declared a mistrial, that wouldn't be enough, right? Or would it? Well, to, to, to best an- answer Your Honor's question, I, I, would, I would point out again that in Arizona, this Court mentioned that examples being of abusive discretion or where actions that cannot be condoned are when, when the trial court acts irrationally, irresponsibly, or for pretextual reasons. And in our yellow brief, we've cited several cases where I would say uh, the, the Court was correct to find an abusive discretion, the Starling case, in which the jury is giving a contrary indication. Uh, the jury in the Starling case uh, indicated that we're making progress, and in fact, can we have 15 more minutes, and the judge pulls them out and declares a mistrial. Your Honor's example, then, with the Gordy case would be the imminent travel plans and, and docket considerations. We also have where the court acts sua sponte, and that's where the, the Webb case, where the trial court... Why isn't that this one? Meaning, the jury doesn't say... We're deadlocked, hopelessly deadlocked. We can't reach a verdict. It asks what happens if we don't. And the foreperson um, hasn't conferred with the jury to determine whether or not, as a group, they believe they're hopelessly deadlocked. Um, why isn't this precipitous action? Well, uh, again, as I, if I mentioned, it's a reasonable view of, of the first note that it is indicative of acrimony. It's a reasonable view of the second note that it was indicative of a deadlock. But again, that's, that's not your burden. We're operating here under a statute which says, in a proceeding instituted by an application for a writ of habeas corpus by a person in custody pursuant to the judgment of a state court, a determination of a factual issue made by a state court shall be presumed to be correct. The applicant shall have the burden of rebutting the presumption of correctness by clear and convincing evidence. Now, what is the factual determination that's been made here? I assume it's the factual determination that the jury was deadlocked. That is correct. And that has to be rebutted by clear and convincing evidence, correct? That is correct. Why don't you answer that to those questions? But what is the status of the, the uh, Allen charge in Michigan? Has Michigan taken a position on whether that's a good thing, uh, a permissible thing for a trial court to do? Well, uh, uh, Michigan has adopted the ABA standard, and Michigan has uh, the instruction 3.12. It's not a, what we would call the traditional Allen dynamite charge because it's, it's not asking the uh, minority to give credence to the majority's opinion. So there is a deadlock jury instruction in Michigan. It's not the traditional Allen dynamite charge. And that wasn't requested either. 
Well, that, that, was not, that was not done here, but again, I think it's reasonable understanding that this is a dual-layer la- dual deference case, being a habeas case, as well as the trial court being, uh, having broad discretion to make this determination, that when you have the, have the notes, I mean, uh, it, it may tell the, the trial court may have felt that giving an Allen charge when there's acrimony may be telling those minority jurors that it doesn't matter and that they may have to submit to the majority opinion. So I believe it was, it was reasonable for the Michigan Supreme Court here uh, applying EDPA to, to conclude that the, the trial court acted in conformance with this. I, I ask you as a matter of Michigan practice, could the trial judge have interrogated the other jurors beyond the foreman and asked them what they thought about whether there was a deadline? I believe that's per- permissible, though not constitutionally or required. Do you suppose there's any reason why he didn't do that? I believe he, uh, she, the trial judge, he she. He took the view of the foreman and answered a one question, and that was it. Is that right? The His conclusion that there was a deadlock was based on one question and one answer of one of the jurors, and that was the whole record supporting his decision. Is that right? Respectfully, no, Your Honor. I believe it was based on the totality of the circumstances, including the two previous notes, and a bifurcated question were. What other circumstances are relevant? The fact that they were raised their voices during deliberation, certainly, that, that doesn't cut any ice either way, does it? Well, well, I believe it does, because this Court has indicated in, in Arizona that, that acrimony is a concern. It's a, it's a countervailing concern to balancing the interests of the defendant, having his case decided by uh, a single tribunal, and fair and just uh, judgments, as well as society having one fair opportunity to vindicate its laws. So I think it's very much uh, an appropriate consideration. Mr. McGormley, what evidence was there to the effect that the jury was not deadlocked? None. Which is presumably what the other side has to prove by clear and convincing evidence if, if we accept the factual finding of the state court. Correct. And that's why it's imperative to view this case in the habeas box that it resides. And that is the Michigan Supreme Court made reasonable factual determinations and did not objectively, unreasonably apply this court's uh, precedent. And the fact that we may look at these notes and go one way or the other means that the state wins. The state should prevail because it's a reasonable interpretation of those notes. If one person may say, I don't know that that really indicates deadlocked, and the Michigan Supreme Court is looking at it and it's a reasonable determination, then uh, deference should apply and the state should prevail. Mr. McGormley, do we have any indication how long this trial judge was on the bench when this trial came up? Uh, how long in terms of serving on the bench? Yes. My recollection is, is that this was an experienced trial judge who then went to either civil arena from a recorder's court or retired. So I believe this was an experienced trial. I don't have the exact years. Acrimony, um, I, I recognize we've talked about it in, in Arizona. But, it, I mean, it could be that the jurors had all agreed on the murder count and they were just quarreling over whether they should add the firearms count or the other way around. I mean, well, it, it, it gets back to that fundamental principle. In, in which case that they would be much closer than, than your comment about acrimony might indicate. Well, it gets back to the fundamental principle that the trial court should be able to take now, this is on the second, the, the initial layer of deference, that the trial court should be able to take the foreperson at her word. When she says that the jury is deadlocked, the jury is deadlocked, especially in light of these. Uh, you can't say, can you, that every time a jury reports that it can't reach a verdict or it hasn't reached a unanimous verdict, that that's a legal deadlock requiring a mistrial, can you? I do not assert that. So, obviously, the word deadlock, and and as I read the judge's questions, he defined it merely as a disagreement as to the verdict. And then later he uses hopelessly deadlocked, but changes the question when he asks the four-person to respond. Isn't there a difference between hopelessly 
i.e., no further deliberations is likely to reach a verdict, as opposed to you can't ever reach a verdict? Well, I, I guess I don't quite see the, the difference, because if the jury is in I think hopelessly deadlocked is probably a, a higher standard than, than genuinely deadlocked. That isn't what the judge said just before she got the response. She said, are you going to reach a unanimous verdict or not? And right. It, it's a bifurcated question. Or person said, no, judge. It's a bifurcated question, correct. I mean, the, the first one was regarding confirming the nature of their note, and then even with the interruption, there is, there are it, twice the court approaches this inability to reach a unanimous verdict. So, again, here, what is paramount is that it's the, the Michigan Supreme Court did not objectively unreasonably apply this court's clearly established uh, precedent. There, there is no case that flatly controls this case other than the Braun Paris uh, standard. In fact, the, the Sixth Circuit here created its own three-part test, as we've indicated in, in our brief, when they said that there are three considerations that determine. So when you take that three-part test, which is not this Court's holdings and, and tests on habeas, as well as the second-guessing of those predicate, predicate factual determinations, uh, being, well, the jury probably didn't have enough time to even review the witnesses. Um, juries often report themselves deadlocked. Uh, we can't give as much weight to this four-person statement. It's contrary to these dual layers of deference. And if there are no further questions, may I reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal? Thank you, counsel. Ms. McGowan. Ms. McGowan. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Habeas relief was properly granted. I'd like to first answer Justice Ginsburg's um, somewhat easy question for me. Um, Judge Brown was sworn into service on January 1st of 1991. At the time of this trial, she had been on the bench approximately six and a half years. We're not disputing her experience as a trial judge. I do disagree with my friend's uh, contention that the Sixth Circuit articulated any specific test. Um, What the Sixth Circuit did was uh, set forth some considerations or some guidelines, including uh, the first of which that the court heard the the, uh, opinions of the parties. And that does go a long way, Justice Kennedy, toward um, the idea that the judge is exercising sound discretion. What, what would he gain from that? I, the parties, one says, let's say one says yes, the other says no. You ought to grant a mistrial. You shouldn't. Well, at the very least, it evidences that the trial judge at least considered that there were, uh, that, that there were competing interests in, in um, debated whether to to dismiss the jury, which is an extraordinarily drastic remedy. And instead, um, our position is that there really is no downside to talking with counsel. Um, you would be able to have the benefit of the party's arguments. You would um, be able to... Do people usually, in your experience, is there usually a clear breakdown between prosecution and defense on a question like this? Just, my perhaps uninformed view is presumably the defense, if they've got a deadlock jury, they want that to continue because all they need is, you know, one holdout. Uh, my, my experience, there's a range of things that are going on. I, I'm sorry, I can't. Um, I, I think it's just, it just depends on the, a variety of the circumstances. But, yes, I think that the case law generally presumes that the defendant does want the first jury to deliberate to verdict. Ms. McKellen, you're, you're, you're arguing the case as, as though the, the only question for us is whether it was an abuse of discretion by the district uh, judge, uh, uh, by the trial judge here. Uh, th- that would certainly be the case if this is coming up through the federal system and we had a federal trial judge who had made this determination. But it is not. It, it is coming up from a state court, and Congress enacted a statute designed specifically to reduce the interference of federal courts with, with state justice. And that statute says specifically that where there's been a factual finding by the state court, it cannot be contradicted by by the federal courts unless it is refuted by clear and convincing evidence. Now, what clear and convincing evidence is there here that there was not a deadlocked jury? 
Well, first, I'm not sure that I understand. I disagree with the premise that there was a factual finding by the trial court that the jury was, in fact, deadlocked. The judge acquired or extracted the no answer and then immediately declared a mistrial. The ruling that was the basis for that declaration of mistrial. Well, presumably on these facts, it would be that in her estimation that the jury was deadlocked. But there's no actual specific ruling. And instead, what we're focused here on is the Michigan Supreme Court's determination that there was manifest necessity. And in the absence of the trial judge exercising sound discretion, there is no the reason for the deficit. The Michigan Supreme Court's determination is simply a determination of the same fact. There was a manifest necessity because the jury was deadlocked. I mean, that fact-finding is implicit, not only in what the trial court did, but also in the Michigan Supreme Court's decision. My understanding of manifest necessity is that that was a legal determination by the Michigan Supreme Court, that there was, according to this Court's precedent, that there was manifest necessity. If the jury is hopelessly deadlocked, is there a situation where that would not constitute manifest necessity? Typically, a genuinely and hopelessly deadlocked jury does constitute. So it does get back to the factual determination of deadlock, correct? Generally, yes. Yes, I believe so. The Michigan Supreme Court cited four factors in support of its decision. The length of the deliberations in relation to the complexity of the case, the heated discussions among the jurors, the fact, most importantly, that the foreperson said that the jury would not be able to reach a unanimous verdict, and the fact that there was no objection by defense counsel. Is there any decision of this Court that says that under — that in a case in which those four factors are present, the trial judge may not grant a mistrial? No. There are no specific requirements. And is there a — could you give us a long list of lower court cases holding that in a case where those four factors are present, a trial judge may not grant a mistrial? Well, no, but the law does still require that the judge exercise sound discretion in making the determination. The question is, when those four factors are present, why are they not sufficient to establish that the judge was exercising sound discretion, unless there's a decision of this Court or perhaps a huge body of lower court case law saying that, no, even when those four factors are present, you may not grant a mistrial, how do you justify the conclusion that you're asking us to draw? Well, I — I think I understand the question. I do — I do recognize that there are no specific requirements, and that in the absence of that, that — that there's nothing specific that the trial judge was required to do beyond the exercise of sound discretion. And in this case, the judge — the record does not support that the judge did exercise sound discretion. So can you — what is the — can you take the converse of the question I asked your colleague on the other side? You can remember it. You see what I'm — I want on the scale. This is a fairly simple case. What's wonderful about this case is there's no disagreement about the facts. We could write them in under two pages, just quoting exactly the notes and exactly what the colloquy was, and note that the lawyer wasn't there. So there we are. Now, imagine that in front of you. You — it's easier for you to look up the cases than it is for him, because you want to find reversals. And all you have to do is you look and you try to see when the State courts, Federal courts have said there was not manifest necessity. So I have some time. I'll read some cases. Which ones do you want me to read? And I don't need to read the standard. I have the standard, and I don't have to worry about — I agree with the quotation of the statute. You have the burden. And the question is, we have a record of those two pages. And does it clearly show that he abused his discretion when he said there was manifest necessity? I'll read whatever cases you tell me to read, I'll read. But I want to find facts. I'm not sure you found some either. That's correct, Your Honor. I — How could it be that there are no cases that really — I mean, thousands and thousands of mistrials. Indeed, there were. How can it be that there are no cases? Is it — are reversals very, very rare for manifest necessity? Well, I did undertake tremendous research, as did my staff. And I did not find — I mean, the short answer is I did not find anything 
that looks even remotely as bad as this. Now, or, oh, well, oh, that's good. But now tell me then, what did you find when you say remotely as bad? Then you perhaps found some where a contention was rejected or where a contention — what did you find? Uh, what did you find by way of cases where they said on facts as bad as this or not quite as bad as this, there was no manifest necessity? Well, I guess the short answer is that um, — that there was nothing exactly on point. I mean, there were, there were cases where the judge acted abruptly and hastily, and then there were cases where the judge did consider the, the options of the parties. So, I the, so the proposition that what happened here is an abuse of discretion cannot be said to be clearly established, right? Well, I don't think that it has to be established at, at a granular level. This Court does require still that the, that the trial judge exercise sound discretion in making the determination that there was manifest necessity. And the case law — You don't have anything like this case that says this would be an abuse of discretion. Well, I, I, I do believe that this case looks something like Jorn, which is a plurality opinion from this Court, where the trial judge acted without warning, acted — sua sponte, no warning to the parties whatsoever, and immediately declared a mistrial, was acting irrationally, irresponsibly. So the fact that it's a plurality opinion means that it was not clearly established by the decisions of this Court. But in Arizona against Washington, this Court quoted Jorn for the proposition that when the trial judge acts irrationally and irresponsibly and precipitously, that their actions, that their ruling will not be upheld. And instead, sound discretion requires that the trial judge um, act carefully and deliberately. When our cases have required much, much more than that, uh, much more than simply referring to a generalized standard that our opinions have set forth, they have required uh, proving that the application of that standard in our opinions uh, comports with the, the provision of the statute that requires you to show that the claim resulted in a decision that was contrary to or involved an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law as determined by the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, our cases don't show that you can simply come in and say, well, it's an abusive discretion standard that is clearly established by the Supreme Court of the United States, and therefore all I have to show is that this is an abusive discretion. I don't think so. I think our cases show you have to show that the standard as applied by our cases uh, does not cover your situation. And you don't have any cases like that. Well, um, <clears throat> I do understand. Uh, well, I guess the best answer that I have for that is that why there are no cases is, is maybe it's because I mean I, I I don't know, but what I what I what I came up with or theorized is that I think that. For the most part, trial courts understand that this is a tremendous obligation, that they must exercise sound discretion. And for the most part, for 186 years, this has pretty much worked. And there's nothing — That may well be, which says it's a terrible statute. But there it is. It says it has to be contrary to clearly established federal law as determined by the Supreme Court of the United States. And you're saying, no, it's enough if it's established by an unbroken line of lower court decisions. That's not what the statute says. I thought your, your position was that everybody agrees on what the law is. If there is a deadlock, a new trial is appropriate. So there's no question about that statement of the law. The fact question, was this a deadlock? And up until now, we've been talking about this, uh, uh, including Justice Scalia, under the fact prong of EDPA, that is, have you shown by clear and convincing evidence? But is it quite correct to say the legal issue is whether there's a deadlock? Isn't the legal issue whether there was a manifest necessity to take the action? Isn't that the test? Precisely, Your Honor. And the argument is that there was not a manifest necessity shown, even though there was a disagreement about whether there was a deadlock. Because all deadlocks are not exactly alike. Precisely. Some people think one, there's one holdout, that means a deadlock. Some people think it, it might be more. I don't think the test is deadlock. The test is manifest necessity. I agree. I, I thought you answered an earlier question that I asked. Maybe I'm, maybe it was something I asked your friend, although I doubt it since it would help him, uh, that the issue did come down to the factual determination of deadlock. Because if there is deadlock, then there's manifest necessity. 
I'm sorry. I thought that when I answered that question that you were asking if typically if the jury is genuinely deadlocked, does that constitute an example of manifest necessity? I'm right. sorry. So the case comes down to whether or not this is a case of genuine deadlock, right? Well, um, no. I, I believe that the case ultimately comes down to — I'm sorry if I misspoke before. I believe that the case ultimately comes down to whether the Michigan Supreme Court unreasonably applied this Court's precedent in finding that the trial judge exercised uh, — that there was manifest necessity in the absence of the trial judge exercising sound discretion. And if the jury — With the layers of — with the two layers of deference worked into your formulation. <laughs> It's not simply whether the trial court erred in the determination that there was a deadlock that constitutes manifest necessity. It's whether or not it was an abuse of, the dis- of discretion for the trial judge to so determine that we review under an additional abuse of discretion standard. Well, my understanding of 2254 is that it does take into consideration the contours of the underlying constitutional violation. And it still is our position that if the um, if the trial judge was not exercising sound discretion, that it, that it can be objectively unreasonable for the Michigan Supreme Court to have found that, and that that is necessarily contemplated by 2024. Doesn't our law clearly establish the fact that the prosecution bears the burden of showing there's manifest necessity, and if there's an absence of evidence supporting that burden, hasn't been hasn't why isn't that the answer to the case? Well, that certainly sounds favorable. I, I don't want to quibble, but I, I think that the I, I, my understanding of the law is that when when there's an objection by the defense, then the burden is on the prosecution. In this case, there was no opportunity to object. So well, I'm not why sure. Is that, that why is that so? Uh, if Mr. Gordon thought that this jury was 11 to 1 for acquittal, you think he would have been reluctant to ask for a sidebar and object to the granting of a mistrial? I think, um, yes, practically, or yeah, practically speaking, I think he probably would have been reluctant to jump up and, I mean, this is a Friday afternoon and the judge has essentially released them for what the What does day. he have to lose at that point? She has made the ruling and that's that there's going to be a mistrial. The, the lawyer at that point can say, Your Honor, I object, and moreover, I'd like you to give the Michigan version of the Allen charge. Nothing stopped the lawyer from doing that. Well, I think just as a practical matter, having the jury hear that the defense does not want the jury to leave, um, the the potential for prejudice would be tremendous. And as a practical matter, I I think that the parties would have been reluctant to do that. And I think — Are you really saying that? You're saying that a lawyer in your office defending a client who thinks that the jury is leaning — is 11 to 1 for acquittal, and the judge says, well, we're going to have a mistrial, and the acquittal is going out the window, the the lawyer is going to be reluctant to say, judge, may we have a sidebar? and then go to the sidebar and object to the granting of the mistrial? Well, I, I'm not sure how we, we would know on these facts that the jury was 11 to 1 for acquittal. Well, I'm not suggesting that they were or they weren't. I'm just uh, asking about what defense counsel would do in that situation. Maybe they're more timid in Michigan than the ones I'm familiar with. But <laughs> I, I would think that they would not be hesitant to raise an objection if they thought it was going to prejudice the client. I certainly would hope so as well. But here, I think that it was all just done just, just so fast and without warning and truly without any opportunity to object. And so for that reason, I, I, I think that the lack of objection really doesn't do anything to fortify the conclusion that there was manifest necessity in these facts. Instead, what, what ex, what ex, I'm sorry, please finish your sentence. No, I Okay. Uh, what other explanation is there for a note saying, are we being too loud, other than that there was some degree of acrimony on the jury. Well, I don't think that the Michigan Supreme Court even made a specific finding that the jury had become ha- had completely devolved at that point and it was they were no longer. I think that No, you don't Michi- dispute the fact that a note came out saying Not at all. are we being too long. Well, what what would that indicate other than that there's some degree of acrimony? I think it just also indicates that maybe they just don't want anybody to hear them and they want to make sure that they're not being overheard and that you know they have some privacy in their deliberations and freedom to, you know, um, engage in a, in, a, in a free debate as loud as they want to be. I don't think that there's, I mean, I suppose what I'm trying to say, however inartfully, is that I, I don't think we can do anything other than just take that note at face value. They send out a note saying, we have a concern that our voice levels may be disturbing the other proceedings. That's it. It did not. Well, maybe that's right and maybe it's wrong. But the state courts 
thought that it was evidence of acrimony, which it could be. And you say, well, it also couldn't be. That may well be. But we're bound to accept the factual determination of the State Court, unless you can show by clear and convincing evidence that that's wrong. I'm not sure. I mean, maybe I'm just not understanding the Michigan Supreme Court opinion, but I don't know that they actually made a finding that that was, in fact, evidence of acrimony. I thought that the Michigan Supreme Court said that that may indicate that they perhaps had become, uh, um, that the deliberations had become acrimonious. Um, and I, and, I, and I think that that's a critical I'll point. I'll look for it. I'm sorry. I'll I don't waste I, your argument time. I'll look for it. Counsel. Pardon me. Yes. There is no, set, no case in our jurisprudence with identical or nearly identical facts. So this is not under the contrary to prong of, 24, of uh, 2254-D1. So it has to be under the unreasonable application. Articulate for me what Supreme Court precedent you think was unreasonably applied and explain how and why. I think Arizona against Washington clearly establishes the law that the trial judge must exercise sound discretion in finding a manifest necessity. And in this case, on these facts, it was objectively unreasonable for the Michigan Supreme Court to have found that there was manifest necessity in the absence of any discretion being exercised whatsoever by the trial judge. And in that case, one of the specific factors was that he consulted with count- the judge consulted with counsel before making the ruling. In this case, that he that the in, trial judge in, failed in Arizona. Oh, right, in right, exactly in Arizona versus Washington. Um, what this court had found is that that the judge um, did exercise discretion. Then that was um, that was evidenced by the judge giving the parties an opportunity to weigh in on it. That's fact, a little shaky as precedent. For did that that was a case that said the trial judge did right and no double jeopardy for a new trial. But in, in passing, to get there, the Court said, well, this case didn't involve that. But the Court isn't passing on anything other than the trial judge in that case didn't violate defendant's right. But I thought that this Court did say that in any mistrial declaration, the trial judge is obligated to still exercise sound discretion, and a reviewing court must satisfy itself that, in accordance with Perez, that the judge did, in fact, exercise sound discretion in finding that there was manifest necessity. And I think that this case looks um, different from Washington and maybe similar to what was going on in Jorn, where the judge acted without warning, without any opportunity for the parties to weigh in on the matter, and simply declared a mistrial, which this Court found to be irrational, irresponsible, and precipitous. So are you suggesting that whenever the trial judge abuses his or her discretion in granting a mistrial, there can be relief under AEDPA? It's clearly established that whenever there's an abuse of discretion, Relief can be granted under AEDPA. It's an unreasonable application of our precedent. If I'm sorry, if I, just to clarify, if the, you're saying if the trial judge abuses, in fact, abuses his discretion, right? Yes, I think that if the Michigan, well, on these facts, for the Michigan Supreme Court to have found that there, that there was manifest necessity in the absence of the judge exercising any discretion whatsoever, that that was in fact an unreasonable application of this court's precedent. Doesn't the standard of review for Setting aside uh, a determination of a state Supreme Court is exactly the same as the standard of review for reviewing a federal district court and a federal court of appeals, despite EDPA. We simply look and see whether there's been an abuse of discretion. If there has, we set aside the state Supreme Court judgment. No, I'm sorry. To clarify, there, it still has to be whether we're looking at the Michigan Supreme Court's decision here or on habeas, you're looking at the, the last reason state court's opinion. And if the state Supreme Court, the last reason court opinion says, made an objectively unreasonable determination under this court's clearly established precedent, then relief will be But warranted. it's objectively unreasonable, you say, whenever there has been an abuse of discretion by the, by the trial court. Right. Well, if the trial judge does not exercise any discretion whatsoever and acts irrationally, irresponsibly, and precipitously, I believe that relief would be warranted even under habeas review 
So Under. it's not just abuse of discretion. It's abuse of discretion plus something else plus what? Well, if the, it's, it's whether the Michigan — whether the — the, the, the decision under review, whether it was an objectively unreasonable determination of this Court's precedent. So you, you do agree that there could be situations where a federal court on direct review would find abuse of discretion, and yet a court on habeas under EDPA would say that that has to stand? Um, yes, I, I'm, I want to clarify. I think um, my understanding is that uh, — it's not just whether this court disagrees. It does still have to be an objectively unreasonable determination. So it's not just simply whether whether this court or any habeas court reviewing it would come to a different conclusion. It still has to be objectively unreasonable. So there are a category of cases where a federal court could look at it and say that's an abuse of discretion, but that same court reviewing it on habeas would say you're not entitled to relief under EDPA. I, I think that that is right. You know, but objectively unreasonable is already built into the criterion of abuse of discretion. You don't abuse your discretion if what you've done is reasonable, you know, within the ballpark. It seems to me you're doubling up here. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't understand how it works. Well, our argument is that the trial court was not in the ballpark here. The trial court in this case did not exercise any discretion whatsoever, let alone sound discretion. Well, how can you say that? I mean, you may think the discretion was abused, but it's not like he just suddenly announced there's going to be a mistrial. He exercised discretion. He looked at the note. He asked the question. He's hopelessly deadlocked. Are you going to be able to reach a unanimous verdict? And he was able to rely on the fact that they previously sent out a note saying, are we being too loud? Um, And the fact he knew what it was, four, four and a half hours, in a case in which there were 10 hours of testimony. I, I mean, I understand your argument that he abused his discretion, but I don't understand the argument that he didn't exercise discretion at all. Well, my, my argument is that the judge was not exercising sound discretion because she was not responsibly gathering the facts. She, she reached the conclusion that the jury was genuinely deadlocked before she even asked a single question. She got a, a note from the jury. Well, she asked the, the foreperson a question. But if, if I could just back up a couple of lines, she received the note saying, what if we can't agree? And she said, I have to conclude from that 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 is your situation at this time. So she had already reached the conclusion that they were deadlocked before even asking a single question. And then from there, she, she um, misdefined, um, for lack of a better description, she, she conflated mere disagreement with deadlock, never corrected that, that, that erroneous definition. And she corralled the, the four-person in a matter of where did, seconds. Where did, I'm sorry, where did she conflate the two things you said she made, deadlocked and the other thing? Well, what, what the, was it, uh, inability to? I'm in the petition appendix at page 94A, where she says, um, I'm sorry, at the bottom of 93A, she says, I need to ask if the jury is deadlocked. In other words, is there a disagreement as to the verdict? Disagreement is not well, the But you've got to read down further. She says, are you going to reach a unanimous verdict or not? And the foreperson says no. But in the absence of an expression of deadlock from the entire jury, on these facts, in this case, it was unreasonable for the Michigan Supreme Court to find that that satisfied the trial judge's obligation to exercise sound discretion. At a minimum, the trial judge was required to responsibly gather the facts. In this case, she she acted hastily and precipitously and without regard for my client's right to have this first jury deliberate to verdict. She declared a mistrial at the very first sign of disagreement and did not give anybody an opportunity to weigh in on that before well, she just the Well, just with respect, it's not the very first sign of disagreement. Reasonably interpreting a note saying, are we being too loud, is a sign of disagreement. And there's another note that comes out. What, do we, what happens if we can't agree? It, it, you're making it sound more precipitous than it was. Well, but also you're ignoring the fact that the first time the question was asked, you believe it was hopelessly deadlock. The foreperson said the majority of us don't believe that. Exactly. And later the majority they did. Oh, no, no. Gave, I'm sorry. There's a period in the opinion of the Supreme Court after we don't believe that. There's not a period on page 7 of the petitioner's brief. Is that a mistake? Um, There's a I thought there was dash. a dash. And, and could the court be concerned that the person was about to say, and again with deference to the court, the majority, majority of us don't believe that 
the defendant is guilty, that the defendant is innocent. I, it wasn't the judge quite correct to stop, stop her right there? Well, it may be correct to stop her right there, but there was other ways to figure out exactly what the four, what the foreperson was trying to explain. And if she was trying to say, well, the majority of us think we can keep going, then it was it was incumbent on the trial judge to to do more. Isn't that exactly th- what she did? After that, he says, don't tell me what you're going to do, or don't tell me what you're going to say. I don't want to know what your verdict might be or how the split is or anything like that. Are you going to be able to reach a unanimous verdict? She did go on after that uh, the person did not immediately answer. She had to ask a second question, yes or no, and the fourth person answered for herself, but not necessarily for the jury when she said no. I think that's right. And well, I think how, how do you know she answered for herself? The judge was talking. She can't reach a unanimous verdict by herself. She's answering for the jury. I, um, I think that really at best, though, given the circumstances of this case, at best, that was an expression of the four person's opinion that the jury would not likely be able. But that's not a statement. So you always have to poll the jury. Is is that what you're saying? Is a requirement? No, it's not. It's I am not, not aware a, that uh, that you always have to poll the jury, and I could see some real disadvantages to it. As a matter of fact, well, it, it perhaps uh, uh, puts more pressure on those who are the hold holdouts. It identifies uh, in some cases who are the holdouts. I'm not aware that that's a requirement. It's certainly not a requirement. We're not saying that it is a requirement. But on these facts, when the jury had simply sent the foreperson out to gather more information, the trial judge was required to, in some way, either either assure itself that the that the jury as a whole did agree with the foreperson's expression. You, you don't think it's a fair inference from the note that the jury was stuck? Uh, that you think it's it's likely that they were just curious and they were rolling along just fine. But they were just curious, well, what if it happens after we've deliberated a little more if we can't reach a a, a verdict? We just have a curiosity about that. Do you think that's a fair inference from that note? I think all that's fair is that they were just trying to gather more information. And that they that they're You don't think there's an inference you can draw an inference fairly that they were that there was substantial disagreement? No, I don't think that that necessarily means that there was substantial disagreement. They might have been having trouble. Thank you, Ms. McGowan. Uh, Mr. McCormley, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you. Two uh, brief points. It is the petitioner's burden to uh, establish, clearly establish precedent here that was objectively You, you mean respondent, right? I'm sorry? You're, you're the petitioner. I'm sorry. It, it, I'm sorry, Mr. Lett. It's Mr. Lett's burden uh, to demonstrate that there is clearly established uh, precedent that was objectively and unreasonably applied. Uh, to Justice Breyer, your question, although not exact fact patterns, and that's what I was struggling with, I would point in our uh, blue brief to Hernandez Guardardo and Lindsay V. Smith, two cases in which, now uh, circuit cases, granted, but two cases in which uh, involved jury deadlocks and counsel was not um, asked a question. Asked, and are those the ones? So, so as I'm seeing this case, it isn't that complicated. You know, it's pretty clear what the standard is. The standard is, was the decision of the, of the state court reasonable in deciding that there was a sound, sound? What's the, the words come from nine wheat? Is that, that's, uh, uh, you know, like a hundred years ago or something. What are 186. The, 186 years ago, and it was something like sound, careful, exercise, patient, or whatever it is, sound, careful, exercise of discretion. They said there was. And the question for us is, was that reasonable? Okay. I guess if the judge had said, hey, you've only been deliberating half an hour. The game starts in five minutes. i got to get there. Dismiss. That would be unreasonable, objectively unreasonable. So come as close as you can to that, where they held reasonable. And what case is it? Well, Mr. Gormley, you have stressed throughout that it's not, not the question that Justice Breyer put, but there are two — you have — emphasize the two screens. This comes to us as, after we have the trial court ruling and the Michigan Supreme Court ruling. So the case isn't all that easy. We're not making the judgment as though what we're coming up in the federal system. Correct, Justice Ginsburg. This is not a direct yes, review, you think review the case. Most relevant precedent from this court. Would you agree that the most relevant precedent from this court is Arizona against Washington? I would not. And I no. 
the reason why, uh, Justice Stevens, is because Arizona was not even a deadlock jury case. I mean, there is language that helps flesh out what an abuse of discretion would be. What do you think the most relevant precedent from this Court is? Perez. Do you have an answer to Justice Breyer's question? It was some time ago, but. <laughs> My best answer, uh, Justice Breyer, is that I, the, the best cases I have are, the two. are, are, those, are those two, because this, this Court has never uh, overruled a manifest necessity determination due to a deadlock jury. But, so, but are you suggesting that you need a precedent overruling a lower court decision before we could declare that something was unreasonable, that our precedent was unreasonably applied? No, my point is, is, is in the 186 years since Perez, it's never happened. It does not happen, and that is consistent with the broad discretion and special respect. Well, but that, that could also be consistent with the fact that Perez was clear enough that judges have to act slowly and, and with thought, and um, that lower courts are catching those when they're not. I mean, I don't know how it cuts, is what I'm saying. Well, I, I think it is indicative of the fact that this has never happened. This has never happened before. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Case is submitted.